Shadowcast, episode 37, an S&M Horror Magazine double feature. That's right, this month we're bringing you the last two S&M stories of the month. In February, Josh Wagner won with his astounding tale, Overexposed. I was drawn in completely by the story, and I think you will be as well. Josh Wagner is a novelist, filmmaker, and playwright. He makes a stunning S&M debut. He was born and raised in California, moved to Montana for his teenage years, and then hit the road with his dog Lucifer to write and travel all across the western United States. These days, he resides in Missoula, Montana, and only leaves his house for long walks and stiff drinks. His award-winning comics have been published by companies such as Image and Ape Entertainment. His short stories and poetry have appeared in various print and online magazines. He prefers his novels, Home Brewed. Overexposed is his first short story published in the horror genre. Visit him at joshwagner.com. Originally, I recorded the story, but being able to bring it to life the way I thought it deserved, I called upon one of my favorite readers to come through with the audio on very short notice. Marty Perrette, you're a lifesaver. Check out his other narrations and listen to his podcasts at boxroomboy.com. Overexposed by Josh Wagner Read by Marty Perrett Flag Pond, Tennessee Well, that boy, he was just slathered in lips. I mean, from the top of his head down to the soles of his feet. Never seen nothing like it. Had two on his cheeks, six on his neck, and they was all down his back. One lip stretched out like a little smile on his dingling there. No extra mouths or nothing. Just lips astray like a goddamn rubber stamp gone wild. Baffra Turkey. A hollow man, no organs you could knock on his chest, and it would echo like he was made of wood. Tobolsk, Siberia. Very many arms, fifty or more, not loose like this, but wrapped tight around body, over rib, around neck, under leg, sometimes tangle up each other, none of them move, every finger on every hand on every arm bonded to skin where it touch. After graduating at the top of his class at the Montpellier Medical School in 1897, Ramey Copeland vowed never again to perform surgery for as long as he lived. A botched appendectomy during his internship, for which he believed himself fully responsible, put a bad taste in his mouth, even if he had been absolved of all guilt. His days of practising medicine were over before they'd really even begun. Instead, Ramey took a job with the school's quarterly journal. He'd always viewed writing as a secondary talent, Three months into the new career, he accepted assignments as a travelling correspondent, charged with researching medical anomalies for a special publication called Lusus Naturae. Due to release at the turn of the century, Ramey travelled throughout Eastern Europe, parts of the United States and into Asia on morbid quests for bizarre diseases, grotesque mutations and, if he could find it, the secret of human suffering. By the time he arrived in Kolkata, Ramey had already filled a dozen notebooks with first-hand accounts, folklore and patient sketches. He knew most of what he had sent was useless to his editor, with rumours flying around of Paris's medical school's very own release of Lucius Nature. Montpellier's backers were poised to yank all funding. In fact, a recent letter informed him that if he wished to compete against Paris, he'd better come up with something better than craniofacial duplication. It seemed even in the quest for knowledge, there was a bottom line. Just one high-profile, gut-level deformity will do the trick, his editor wrote him. Something no one has ever seen before, something Paris can't take away from us. India had so far given Ramey a man with two penises, a woman with tree bark for skin, and a little girl with a tail. All phenomenal, none original. The editor had added at the end of the letter, I'm sending a photographer over there to meet you. The young doctor took a rickshaw from the Auckland Hotel to the train station where Peter Gerard, overladen with luggage and camera gear, had just arrived. Ramey was a tall man, taller still in this country, clean-shaven, the ladies found his face a treat to look upon. He adored wearing white. He was a vegetarian with occasional lapses in discipline, and he was morbidly terrified of clocks. Peter Girard, on the other hand, stood barely over five feet. His belts were all in their last notches, and he ate nothing but sausages. He sported a rather trim moustache, wire-framed glasses stood between the world and his bright green eyes, and he found hats morbidly annoying. Bonjour, Monsieur Girard. Allow me to help you with that. 
Raimi took Peter's suitcase and handed it to the rickshaw driver, who seemed to make it a personal mission to hold as many packages as possible at one time. What's the smell? Peter said, scrunching up his nose. Raimi helped his companion into the small carriage. They burn their trash in the streets. All of it. Every bit. The smaller villages are a bit more civilised. Street swine deal with it there. Their runner piled the photographer's luggage onto the roof of the rickshaw and strapped it all down with frayed rope. All save his camera boxes. Peter insisted on carrying those atop his lap. The driver hoisted the handles and pulled the vehicle with a jog. They sped through the blustery Kolkata streets into the sea of outstretched hands of the pedestrian throng. Kolkata was a hybrid of grime and green, a wholly organic city where vegetation displaced sidewalks and moss and vine flowered every wall. Raimi said they would head back to the hotel to freshen up before grabbing a bite to eat. So, are you married, Monsieur Coplan? Peter asked. His mystified gaze traced the controlled mania of the city. Call me Raimi and no, I'm not. You? My wife would love it here. So much to tidy up. She'd never sleep. Have you found anything good for us? We'll look at some unlikely odds and ends tonight, but I've picked up a promising lead for tomorrow. Raimi said, on the outskirts of the city. As Raimi expected, the evening's attempts failed to amaze. First they tried an address where a child of nine was said to have lizards and other tiny creatures growing from her back. These animals turned out to be tumours of grotesque shape, and of even grosser exaggeration. Next they wandered for an hour through the slums in search of a guru with six eyes. They found only the two natural eyes in the middle of his face though he did have six toes on one foot. Perhaps a mistranslation, or possibly a spiritual metaphor. Either way, nothing of interest to the journal. Nonetheless, Peter photographed everything. Their employers, after all, were sparing no expense, or perhaps they wanted to burn up as much capital as they could before their funding dried up. And for tomorrow, Peter asked, as he slid the guru's foot over a white background. I have a map, but little details. A wild goose chase, then? Maybe, said Remy. You get used to it. No hints? The flashlight powder exploded, frightening everyone in the room. Peter just groaned. Please don't move. They don't understand. Can you tell them? As he set forth to try again, Remy explained how he met his informants at the house of the girl with the tail. Dozens of Harijan packed inside a small room. Supposedly the girl's sacred posterior cured disease on contact. She insisted the Harijan or outcasts should be allowed equal access, a fact that caused as great a stir as the appendage itself. The man who approached Raimi seemed to understand what he was after and drew him a map. He wrote down a few lines on the back, which the concierge later interpreted to be further instructions. Along with this were a few words written in Devangari that his interpreters refused to pronounce. The very presence of these words inspired a mixture of fear and admiration among them. Such emotion translated to Raimi unshakable curiosity. I hope it pans out, whatever it is, said Peter. There's not a lot of hope back at the office. Raimi shrugged. If we were to find something truly remarkable, it will be here in Kolkata. It's a black place, isn't it? On the surface, possibly deep down as well, there is a vibrancy here, though. I can't fathom it. Pete buried his head beneath the velvet. So, what do we expect to find? Tomorrow? I get the impression he's a, a yogi of some sort. Once again, the flash incited pandemonium. Peter popped back out and shook his head. Well, god damn it! Peter's romantic notion of travelling by elephant was replaced with the reality of a vegetable cart drawn by two mules. They left before sunrise, Peter and Raimi lay in their back on piles of greens and slept most of the way. They made what felt like hundreds of stops before the sun rose over the periphery of Kolkata's westernmost district, where shacks trickled into the forest and trees outnumbered the people. This country gives me the creeps, Peter said. I felt so at first too, replied Raimi, but I've grown fond of it. Raimi's impression of Kolkata stirred in him an unusual mixture of compassion and respect. The squalor of the lower class was like nothing he'd ever seen before. The limbless, the toothless, and the malformed, people starving to death in the middle of public streets. It disgusted him. On the other hand, the destitute relished in class solidarity. He never saw a beggar begging alone. Nothing like the isolated Parisian outcasts existed here. 
The dregs of Indian society suffered as much or more than anywhere else, but at least they formed a community, and amidst the pain there hovered something akin to peace. The vegetable cart turned up a dirt road and stopped within a small empty market. Shop owners ran out to pick through the dregs of the crop. The driver extended a hand to his passengers. No further, he said. Raimi examined the map. We're almost there. No further, no further. I think this is his last stop, Pete said. But we've only a little ways to go. Can't you just... No further, no further. Come, come, come. Sweeping gestures ushered the Westerners out of the cart. I suppose we can walk. Are you okay with all that? Pete grinned and gave his camera case a hearty slap. I'm used to dragging all this weight around. Let's go. The remaining miles subsisted of more wilderness than society. Occasional red fields flanked the road. Huts and gardens scattered among coral wood trees and multi-fingered tamarines, while half-naked children wove trails between. Once the pair trekked that remaining mile, the neighbourhood took shape along an incline that sloped towards a muddy stream. Camels and sheep knelt to drink. Shacks and huts packed needlessly close together on the stream's far side. As Remy and Pete approached, the people stared at them without shame. Little by little, a crowd gathered, packing tightly around the travellers, following without speaking a swarm of ants clinging to a drifting twig. Um, Remy? It's okay. This is their way of welcoming us, I think. They walked among countless footsteps, neither leading nor following. Hands reached freely to touch their clothes, their hair. Curious murmurs and side conversations could be heard from all sides. Raimi tried to question a few of them about the map, but they showed more interest in Pete's equipment than his words. Stop it, he said, swatting them away as best he could from behind boxes and straps. They laughed at him and continued, unsnapping pockets and lifting flaps. At last they came to a wooden fence stretching at least ten feet into the air. Here, the crowd stopped. Glancing between the slats, Raimi saw a good deal of movement on the opposite side. The throng parted and two Hindi men, very large and very dark, stepped forward to take a menacing stance in front of the visitors. "'We're looking for the yogi,' said Remy. "'Yogi?' The men did not yield or speak. Their eyes locked one with Pete and one with Raimi the latter offering both a lopsided grin before gesturing with his map. A rapid conversation immediately sparked between the two old men. They repeated the words written on the paper. A collection of hands in unison like the multiple arms of Shiva snatched up the westerners and shuttled them forward. The gate swung open. As Raimi and Pete stepped away from the fence, the former glanced back to see the mob huddled together at the threshold, gesturing them both on with encouraging hands. Well, Pete said, I guess we... yes, I guess so. Within the perimeter of the fence a junkyard surrounded them. Twisting shafts of piping and piles of lumber, compost, mulch and faeces dominated the landscape. Among the piles were fragments of bone, bits and pieces here and there and occasionally entire skeletal segments. There were a ribcage of a dog, the skull and spine of a horse. The movements Remy had seen earlier resulted from hundreds of small black and yellow birds flitting about the jutting props, engaged in a game of musical perches. At the far end of the field a narrow trail of footsteps led back to a shack. Not just any shack, mind you. This was the Taj Mahal of shacks. Three stories and three chimneys, crooked to perfection and decorated on the outside by bits of shale and glass-plastered mosaic-like on the walls. Dancing stone idols loaned the walkway, leading to a bright red door, trimmed with nails, trinkets and bone. What is this? Pete asked. Some sort of poor man's temple? If so, its guardian sat in a lotus pose near the threshold, a child who could not have been more than six years in age. Pete started to pull out his camera, but Raimi shook his head no. Each took careful steps towards the door. The little boy waiting for them was engaged in deep, careful breathing. His eyes remained closed, and his face bore serenity. Stupidly, Raimi crouched down and held forth his map. The boy did not open his eyes, but simply asked, Did you speak the English? Yes, Remy said, stunned. Very good. You are most welcome here, strangers. Put away your papers. Tell me why you have come. Ah, Remy stammered to find composure in the face of such a sophisticated toddler. We're researching for a medical journal. The child's eyes opened to reveal pools of bright blue, dazzling in contrast to his black hair and copper skin. A shudder tore down Remy's spine. 
In this life, each moment is a hair's breadth from death, the boy said in his adolescent voice. There is no footstep you have taken which has not barely escaped the grave. To these words, neither Pete nor Amy could form the slightest response. Amy felt an inexplicable impulse to run, run all the way back to the hotel, pack up, board a ship and return to France. The impulse paralyzed him. It didn't go away until the child got to his feet, smiled and said rather pleasantly, I am Baudin. The two men just stood and stared. At Baudin's gentle knock, the red door opened. Seven children in a row, each of them smaller than the next, pushed from within until the entryway to the shack stood wide. Then they ran back inside the darkened dwelling. Baudin bowed low. Please, enter. Come. Lit only in corners by a few hanging oil lamps, the room was a nest for shadows. Lacking interior walls, the temple appeared to be a single cavernous room. And it was filled with animals. Everything from pigs to foxes to cattle to chickens stretched out on the floor, nestled in patches of straw or huddled beneath blankets. On the rafters perched birds, monkeys climbed the walls. Scattered among the beasts, Ramy and Pete spied children, dozens, perhaps hundreds of children, from infants to toddlers, some naked but most in rags. There were very few intermingled here and there were dressed in fine silks and adorned with strings of gems. They clustered in small groups, talking softly, playing games or simply napping. Some seemed out of their minds. One small boy punctuated a steady stream of drool by slapping his own face. Two little girls sat nose to nose and whispered unceasingly into each other's mouths. One climbed about with the monkeys. Raimi's first impression of this place was of a madhouse for children. Do you smell that? he whispered to Peter. Smell what? Exactly. A place so packed with creatures should have smelled of sweat and shit, yet for all the squalor there was only a surprising odour of freshly cut wildflowers. Come, little Bodan said, gently taking Raimi's fingers in his hand. He led them over a dirt floor to the far wall, which was bathed with better lighting. Perched on a mat of straw sat an old man, whose age could be no less than the combined years of all the children in the room. His face, lost somewhere amidst a hive of wrinkles, seemed to exist solely as a pedestal for a pair of whitened eyes. The backs of his hands rested upon his knees. His posture was perfect. He proudly wore a wreath of garlands about his neck, and his hair grew wild and coiled like snakes about his head. Is that him? Our yogi? Pete whispered. If indeed he was, Raimi could see no physical aberration. He bent down for a closer look. All aspects were in proportion. There were the proper number of limbs and no growths. Unusual was a torso worked over with scars, as if the tiny man were a stray piece of wood along the road where travellers might carve their initials. Raimi leaned towards Bodan. What is he? He is the watchman. What's he watching? Pete asked. Pardon me, Sahib, Raimi addressed the old man directly, but what is this place? It is no good talking at a stone. Bodan said, if you wish to know something, you must address me. You're his in interpreter. I am Gwobachan. I am his voice. He has no tongue. He only has me. At this, the yogi parted his lips, and the journalist saw within his mouth only a gaping chasm and the void of his throat. Every tooth was missing, and his tongue had indeed been cut out. Raimi reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a small bag of miniature medical instruments. Would it be all right if I examined him? Is this how you reverence a god? asked Odan. By taking shavings of his skin? A god? Pete muttered. Raimi took a deep breath. We're wasting our time. There's nothing for us here. Pete frowned, pulling his companion aside by the arm. Look, I don't know about you, but if we don't bring something back, Marty will sack me for sure. I've got a family to think about. Let's just look around a little more. Fine, Remy said. I suppose there must be some reason they told us to come here. Remy knelt down so that his eyes were level with Bodan's. How old are you? Fifty-seven, the child answered with no hint of irony. Remy considered this. He certainly spoke with the eloquence and intelligence of an adult. Perhaps this is what they were looking for. Mind of a man, body of a child. Pete wandered off to look at a group of boys by the oil lamps. When he saw their faces in the light, he jumped back. Raimi, you better have a look at this. 
The urgency in Pete's voice pulled Raimi from his thoughts. He walked over and stared hard at each boy in turn, occasionally pulling down an eyelid or examining gums. They're sick, Raimi said, sighing. He glanced around the room. They're all sick. Pox, cholera maybe. Could be poliomyelitis. Regardless, these children require immediate medical attention. Bodan only smiled. My friend, these children are perfectly safe here. Raimi turned on him with holy indignation. Perfectly? What kind of death house is this? He rushed over to a small girl, reaching out to pull her tongue from her mouth. He felt her forehead, checked her teeth, burst blood vessels in her eyes, draped a red film over the sclera. He slapped a hand over his mouth and nose. She's terminal and contagious. She is, in fact, neither. Bodan calmly explained. They are in, how do you say, stasis. The yogi shields them. Shields them? It's too late for that, he turned to Pete. Set up over there and get some shots. These poor kids. Symptoms indicate, Bodan interrupted. You are correct. They are sick. That is why they were brought here. This is a sacred place. The presence of the yogi suppresses all. What do you mean? Within these walls, no living thing will age. During his travels, Raimi had heard more than a few fanciful tales of weird, disturbing powers. As a rational man and a scientist, he would normally dismiss such ideas outright. But the past months had softened him to possibilities that defied explanation. He peered deeply into Bodan's eyes. Was a 57-year-old man really locked inside there somewhere? Meanwhile, Pete began setting up his master camera. Several children gathered. They tugged on his pants, knelt to examine his shoes, fiddled with the empty box and the hinges of his tripod. Parents bring sick children here when no hope remains, when their lives are about to end, Bodan continued. These animals and birds, the flowers, they are gifts, sacrifices. They do not age here either. Bodan picked a viper off the floor. Rainy recognised it as one of the most poisonous variety in the subcontinent. This was a gift to the yogi from my father when he placed me here fifty-one years ago. You're telling me that just by standing near the old man, all metabolic processes cease functioning? Remy asked, his voice incredulous. We do not age, and at the moment neither do you. Suddenly the room swelled in a blinding light. Gasps followed, some fearful but mostly curious. The flash receded like a slow tide in Raimi's saw an expression of wrath and fear wash over Bowden's countenance. "'What is he doing?' thundered the child. "'Peter, hold on!' Raimi stretched out his hands. "'It's just a camera. It captures images. I don't understand. It's—' An overwhelming rush of deja vu penetrated Raimi's temporal lobe. Tremors of feedback that nearly brought tears to his eyes. He stared into the vast darkness as if he were searching for something. Almost inaudibly, he said, It stops time. As soon as the flash had gone off, the yogi broke into a low, guttural moan, which grew louder by the second. Bodan rushed to his master's side, his tiny hands stroked over the ancient's shoulders and arms. Bodan said, It's all right, they won't do it again. Raimi, come and look at this, Pete whispered excitedly. Raimi stepped over a dazed slumber of pigs to reach his photographer. Pete was pointing to a little girl sitting on a chair. She couldn't have been more than a day over four years old. Her hair was cut down to her chin, and she wore only a loincloth. Her attention did not waver from a piece of wood in her lap, upon which she scrawled thick black lines with a stick of charcoal. Her skin! Look! It's harder without the light, but I saw it clearly as the flash was fading. Another picture, quick. Pete hurried to refill the magnesium chamber, tipped his still-burning spirit lamp and whoosh! Pure white light showered the room once more. Bodan screamed, Stop! At once! The yogi's wailing resumed louder than before, and suddenly Remy understood. The first thing he made out was the little girl's ribs. Earlier, he'd taken her as simply emaciated. But as the light faded, it was clear that he saw straight to the bone. Between her ribs, a beating heart, he could see the girl's esophagus, her large intestine, her lungs, even her entire nervous system. 
all of it visible within that blinding instant. At the last second before the light faded, Rimi glanced her face. A startled white skull glanced back. Invisible flesh, Pete whispered. You two must go now, scolded Bodan. Get as many pictures as you can, Rimi whispered, of her and anyone else. Can you do it without the flash? They won't come out too well. Try. The children gathered en masse, drawn to the strangers and their curious machines. They seemed to understand the camera on some gut level, and each tried to muscle in front of the lens. Small faces peered through, catching their reflection and gazing beyond. Pete opened another box and pulled out a more modern portable device, designed to work better in low light. Placing it between the luminescence of the oil lamps and the frame of his subjects as best he could, he snapped image after image of disease, deformities, and the curious girl with invisible flesh who, Remy hoped with excitement, could be the ticket to the fame they had been looking for. "'Why have you come here?' shouted Bodan. He was now all but cradling the old man. Tears flowed freely from his child eyes. The yogi sustained operatic scream rose in pitch. "'That's enough!' Ramey whispered to Pete, we'd better beat it. As Pete scurried on to disassemble and put away his cameras, Ramey stood over the girl and took notes on a few scraps of paper from his shirt pocket. She was the charm, for sure. Paris would never find anything like this. Epidermal translucence occasionally manifested from time to time. But the girl's skin and muscles exhibited total transparency, as if there was nothing there at all. Ramey nervously reached out to touch what he could not see. He felt soft skin. I hope to God those pictures come out. Meanwhile, Pete had taken a single lurching step backwards. Ramey, I feel faint like a... His hand went to his head. He steadied himself against the wall and slid into a crouch. What's the matter? Ramey rushed to the man's side but immediately pulled back in revulsion. My God! Pete's face teemed with sores. Blood dripped from his tear ducts. What is it? The poor man groaned, patting his cheeks with his fingers. Have I caught something? Impossible, Remy muttered. No infection could germinate so quickly. Smallpox, perhaps, or hemorrhagic fever, possibly necrotizing fasciitis, but the later stages. Remy scanned the children, of whom Pete had recently taken photos. Similar symptoms manifested on many of their smiling faces. Dear God, save me, I've caught something! Pete screamed, trembling, enough to rattle the walls. Calm down, Pete, we don't know that. We... You have bought a curse, Bodan said in a cold whisper. Your machine has transported their diseases to you. Remy tried to control his racing mind. Was it possible? With everything unaging, unchanging, could germs be as horny as a bull at the gate? Cameras capture light. Pasteur proved that diseases transmit through the air, but how much had he really understood about it? The sciences of photography and germs were both still so young and unknown. His cluttered thoughts were interrupted by Pete's horrified scream. Ramy, look at my skin! It's gone! Pete held up a hand and indeed Ramy saw a trace of bone and nerves. Though Ramy's reason rebelled against the very idea, what Bodan had said appeared to be true. Pete was taking on the diseases and deformities of every child he photographed. Oh my God, I'll die! Pete, please, you're just hallucinating. We have to get you out of here. We'll find a ride to the hospital. No! Pete scurried back from the doctor. I'm not leaving. He is right. The soft voice of Bodan licked Remy's ear. The child stood between the two men and placed a hand on each of their arms. If he leaves this room, he will die. But here neither disease nor age can corrupt him. This is ridiculous, Ramey growled. Without any concern for his own health, he lifted Pete up and hoisted him over his shoulder. Then he grabbed the main camera box and the portable too, looping their straps around his neck. He left behind the tripod and the bag of flash powder and headed for the door. He stilled his mind but could not block out Pete's terrible shrieks. Ramey kicked open the red door in stride. He marched past the trash piles and the bones, the crowds of villagers who still gathered by the fence parted wide for his passage, muttering prayers and fearful words. Two days later, Ramey sent a telegram to his editor. We have our anomaly, bringing him home. Pete's transparency had not been a trick of the light. 
Ramey wrapped him in a blanket and took the train to the docks. He boarded a steamer ship that would return them to France. Neither of them left their cabin for the duration of the journey. Pete's illness worsened, and though Ramey did his best, the nature of his diseases surpassed all logical reckoning. Pete died three days after disembarking. The body could not be contained. Ramey begged for them to leave him be, but the smell grew overpowering. At last, the crew forced their way into the cabin and unwrapped the body. When they saw Pete's skinless skeletal corpse, they immediately flung it overboard. Ramey was lucky they did not toss him out as well. His last hope lay in the photographs. Immediately upon his return to Montpellier, Ramey put the film in for processing. A few days later, he was called in to review the prints. His editor was waiting. Ramey recognised the livid expression of his boss, and his hopes fell. It must have been the poor lighting. Is this some kind of sick joke? Flushed, the editor presented Ramey with several prints. None were of the children. Not living children, anyway. Each photo had revealed only rotting corpses, some young, some old, all long dead. Ramey examined the decomposition as well as he could, and saw what may have been signs of poliomyelitis, cholera, and pox. Nothing indicated a girl with transparent skin, save perhaps one photo, in which a pile of white bones, overexposed in the corner beside the leg of a rotting chair, sat next to a small piece of charcoal, lying on the floor. The S&M Story of the Month for March was Stitches by A.J. Madden. A.J. Madden is a second-year student in Cardiff University. He has previously been published in The Monsters Next Door, Sonar E-Zine, Twisted Tongue Magazine, and Short.Story.me. He was featured in the Bound by Blood 3 anthology and makes his return to S&M Magazine, Anthology Bound once again. A.J. is an amazing young writer that really knows how to captivate, as seen here in his S&M Story of the Month. He is currently trying to balance writing short stories and doing university assignments. You can visit him at ajmadden at live.co.uk. Our reader for this one, also on very short notice, is Kate Sherrod. You can visit her at suppertimesonnets.blogspot.com. Thanks, Kate. You're the best. Stitches by A.J. Madden Read by Kate Sherrod Do you know what it's like to be a doll? No, I didn't think you did. No one knows what a doll really is until they become one. Even then, they don't have much time to think about it. Dolls do not have a particularly long life expectancy. It's not difficult to understand why when you consider we don't have mouths. It is a hell beyond description, but it also brings a sense of peace, a calmness that one can only acquire in the face of imminent death. I can still remember the first day he brought me here. The memory is growing hazy, but I cling to it with a cat's claws, trying not to forget. I remember a different person, distinctly separate from what I am now. Her name was Stephanie Goodwin, and she was 26. She enjoyed trashy fantasy novels and cut-price ice cream. Her mother had arthritis, and her little sister was going to become a lawyer. Sometimes I feel we have been severed, cut down the middle into two separate souls. Then I remember that I was that girl, and it all happened to me. I had been temping as a receptionist, a stopgap while waiting for something better to come along. One Friday evening, I had left the building late, inhaling a fresh gasp of night air. My heels ticked and talked against the blunt tarmac, unaware that a similar noise was shadowing them. Good night, ma'am. I'll never know exactly who said that to me, but I appreciate his words. They were the last words spoken to me, a final farewell as I strolled into the darkness. 
I was inches away from the car. He was either laughing or crying. The bag was thrown over my head. The legs were kicked out from under me. I fought and screamed. Something pushed into my thigh and a cool feeling webbed up toward my stomach. When I awoke, I was in this room, and it is here I have been ever since. He was the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes. He explained that I had been chosen to become one of the dolls. His most recent doll was decomposing in the corner. He stroked my hair and told me I was beautiful. I tried to spit in his face, but he injected me again. I still don't know who he is. I don't know his name. I frequently forget what he looks like. I see him mostly in shadows and whispers, hiding behind tinted glasses and bared teeth. He has an oddly calming voice, as if in another life he might have been an airline pilot. I became a doll because he told me that's exactly what I had always been. He spoke of it in magical terms, spinning metaphors about toy makers and dolls that numbed my hysterical mind. He told me he could bring me to life. I just needed to peel back the layers, pulling at the dead flesh until I found the real me hidden down inside. He said it would happen in stages. The first stage was the dress. Dolls wear dresses. Everybody knows that. Frilly, frothy dresses with ribbons and bows. He stripped me of my old clothes. I still wonder what he did with them. And put me in an adult-sized doll's outfit. It's pink and yellow with little bows running down the sides. It smelt of cleanliness but a cheerful, enforced cleanliness that implied I wasn't the first to have worn it. He told me I looked adorable. When he forced me into the dress, I became angry. I clung to that silly notion that I could take my own life back. I kicked out at him. The buckled shoe that he had placed on my foot flew away and knocked him on the head. I felt the syringe again injecting me with liquid nightmares. My face was the next to change. I know makeup is only superficial, but its effects changed me permanently. The cheap cosmetics could wash away, but the damage had already been done. He came into the room one day, talking so excitedly that he seemed to be speaking another language. He told me how every doll should have the perfect complexion, like flawless and ornate china. A mirror of perfection were his exact words. He spent days applying the makeup, styling me into a doll. His skeletal fingers clutched the thin instruments awkwardly, and I'd often feel him slip and send a bruise of lipstick across my chin. He poked my eye several times, applying the liner. When it came to the rouge, he splashed it onto my cheeks with a typical masculine energy, rubbing it into circles with a pointed fingertip. He showed me my reflection and stroked my hair as I cried, spying his sinister stare and madman grin from behind me. Step three was the photos. There were so many, each flashed like a shriek in the dark. The room would light up suddenly, casting us as midnight silhouettes against the artificial flare. He developed every one of them, then posted them around the room. He had to remove the other photographs first, the ones of the dolls that had come before me. Here, I'd spent a long time in stage three, where nothing happened and things began to approach a slower pace. He brought my food and allowed me use of the bathroom twice a day. 
He spoke to me in the lonely hours of the night. His temperament grew warmer, but the prick of the syringe still shone in the corner, a silent warning to ensure my silence. I'll never know why he chose me to become a doll, and it terrifies me to think it was just a lottery. There have been many before, and there will be many after me. Their photos used to line the walls of this mausoleum, each face staring back at me from the other side. Now my own face, blank and earthy, has replaced them. I don't know how he has been doing the doll making for so long without being caught. Perhaps he's clever, or perhaps everyone already knows. There could be doll makers on every street in every town providing some twisted service to their communities. The stitching was the final step of becoming a doll. Dolls do not have mouths, as they do not need to speak. They have nothing of value to say, and to hear them talk detracts from their natural and intrinsic beauty. Those were his words, not mine, though sometimes I can no longer tell the difference. It took me a few days to work out exactly how he would stop me from talking. The first time I heard him mouth the word, Stitch? I almost lost consciousness. A childlike screaming dread cascaded down my body, reaching out to the ends of every finger. As the weeks passed, I had become fraternized with fear. I had bonded with it and accepted as a permanent bedfellow. The idea of having my mouth stitched together was beyond even my sterilized concept of horror. It played constantly on my mind, a grainy film that splashed against my eyes. He stitched my mouth tenfold in my nightmares, all while I screamed into the back of my teeth. Spurred on by the adrenaline, I decided I would find the strength to escape. Timing was very important. Too sudden, and he would catch me. Leave it too long, and I would die. His movements at bedtime were timed and calculated, precisely analyzed in order to anticipate the ideal moment for anyone to escape. I waited for seven nights. I began by twisting my wrists free from the leather handcuffs that he forces me to wear each night. They were flimsy and easily loosened, but I maintained the charade until the right moment. I raised myself slowly from his table and shoveled my body to one side. My lips curled in on each other. I attempted to put my feet quietly on the floor and hoisted myself into a standing position. I crept toward the hallway, standing still for minutes at a time, cast like a statue against the dusty gloom. I reached the door and extended a shaking hand to greet it. With infinite patience and painstaking care, I turned the handle. It squeaked and my teeth clamped shut. I continued opening the door a few inches, sweating dark thoughts that ran down my clothes and into the carpet. I slid through the slit I had created for myself and felt the material of my dress scratch against the handle the small tear echoing like peeled masking tape through the house. I was now in the hallway, and the atmosphere of normality I encountered was sickening. A patterned red carpet ran along the hallway and up the stairs, while dusty photographs lined the walls. Shoes muddied the cheery welcome mat, and a coat was thrown over the crook of the banister. This seemed to be everyone's house, replicated millions of times across the country. Yet behind the closed door of the living room lay its beating heart of darkness. I reached the front entrance, casting a hopeful glance atop the staircase. I felt the relief preemptively, already experiencing the breathless joy of escape. I pulled at the front door. 
it wouldn't budge. I searched for keys, but by that time it was too late. I failed to notice the thread connecting the doorknob to a small device, hiding like a spider at the corner of the ceiling. It began to shriek, and its red light flashed, a one-eyed scream of terror that urged me to run. I was halfway through the kitchen when he caught me. I can't remember what he did to me, nor did I want to. Dolls don't escape. They don't get up and walk away. They are beautifully still and stare at the world with inert eyes. That may have happened days ago, or it may have been last night. The drugs are too strong. But it, it's my last coherent memory. Now I sit and wait for the stitching. He's going to do it. He's actually going to do it. My mouth will be stitched. Needles will cut through my lips and sew them together until I can no longer breathe. That's what killed the rest of them. He combs their hair and he dresses them. He tries to silence them with the stitches and they suffocate. He doesn't care. He's insane. Like a frustrated but spoiled child, he will just find another doll. There will be more after me, and I will just be another corpse in the corner. Today is stitching day. He hasn't said so. He rarely speaks to me now, but I already know it. This is suffocation by design. It's not the blunt cruelty of an open hand or even a cloth bag. It is asphyxiation by a single thread, woven around my mouth in a signature of death. He's coming now. His footsteps thud in my ear. Anesthetic first. Another needle. It sinks into my cheeks like a long kiss goodbye. Slowly the feeling dies. It tingles for a while, then numbness. He gets the thread and, on first attempts, manages to slide it through the eye of the needle. It comes toward me and slices my lip open. I don't feel anything, watching as the blood starts to trickle down my chin. It's yanked through to the other side. I vomit. He keeps pulling the thread tightly so the lips remain locked together. Then he goes again. And again. Eight dots puncture my lips, each with a single piece of thread running in and out of them. The lips are pulled together, my terrified eyes becoming the only signal of emotion in my entire face. He looks at me afterwards. A smile breaks his lips. You are the most beautiful doll I've ever made. I feel like vomiting again, but there's nowhere for it to go. Everything is contained inside of me. I'm trying to breathe through my nose, but I'm already lightheaded feel like passing out. Being contained inside the house was bearable, but being trapped inside my own body is pure hell. I can't laugh or scream, cry or breathe. I have been forever muted. Such is the life of a doll. Pretty, brittle things which gather dust in the corner. Anyone can become a doll. And anyone who thinks they never would is living in blissful ignorance. We are all doomed to become dolls. Eventually. 
Many thanks to this month's authors, A.J. Madden and Josh Wagner. Also thanks to the editor at SNM, Stephen Marshall. Of course, it wouldn't have been possible without the lightning-fast responses of Kate Sherrod and Marty Parrott. Thank you all. I would be remiss if I didn't also thank you, the listener. I hope you enjoyed these stories, and will share them with a friend. That's how this thing works. I give to you, you give to others. The authors get the exposure they deserve, and in turn, you get a chance to do it again next time. So please, share it. Blog about it. Leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends on Facebook and Twitter. And if you can, donate a few bucks to help keep us going. Our music was courtesy of The Contrarian. Find out more at contrarianmedia.com. As always, this episode was produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So share it, share it, share it. Just don't try to change it or sell it. Until next time, stay well. Me siento